thank you very much, and certainly thank you for the opportunity uh, to talk about a subject so rare you'll probably never see it. I should also forewarn you that you're not eligible for CME credits for this grand rounds because this is not something that's part of your natural practice. And having said that, I would like to start first. Uh, I've had a wonderful opportunity to work with some incredibly talented people around the world, and these are some of the collaborators uh, that have been involved in these twins, so I would like to give them credit uh, right at the beginning. Now, it's interesting, Paul just mentioned Ted Roberts. The guy who told me it was all in the veins was somebody that Ted Roberts trained, trained and that was Jack Walker uh, at the Salt Lake City. And uh, it was an interesting concept because if I truly done my due diligence on Crania Pegasus twins when they were referred to me, I would have never accepted them because the history behind them was nothing more than horrible, either death or if you did survive, it was significant morbidity. And uh, I only figured that out after they arrived. So we had to put in a lot of work to try to figure out uh, what to do. It's a rare disorder in the sense uh, we pretty much know every set of twins that have been born around the world over the last 10 years. And it's typically between one to three births per year worldwide. Most of them don't survive. And those who do, uh, do survive birth uh, pretty much die very early on. And looking at the surgical history of treating them, it was pretty bad. If you went back to the 19, uh, early 80s, uh, mortality was extremely high. And even if you didn't die, you had severe morbidity associated with it. So part of what uh, we tried to sort out was to try to do this a little bit different and to see whether or not we could improve on those numbers. Conjoining occurs pretty much in every animal species. I have uh, amassed a collection of conjoined images uh, over the years, mostly from eBay. Uh, but there are, this was a fascinating set that came out of uh, Thailand. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, this showed up in the paper. This is a, a double-headed craniopagus porpoise. Unfortunately, the fisherman was really dumb because he threw it back in the water. If he had put it up on the Internet, he could have got probably around a half a million dollars for it because there's some guy in Hong Kong that collects this type of uh, oddity. Uh, the terminology behind the craniopagus is actually an interesting one. We're going to focus on, I mean, there are a number, obviously, of different types of conjoining, but we're going to focus on primarily just the head end. And it's interesting, if you go back and look at the origin of the term, craniopagus is a modern term. It was only developed at the end of the 19th century. And if you go back and look at the earlier textbooks, children born in a conjoined state were referred to as monsters. A monastery is a Latin word meaning an evil warning from God. And when you go back and look at the early textbooks, and I'll show you some examples, uh, right up until the end of the 19th century, uh, the, this was the common term. And this is uh, Forrester's original book, published uh, in the latter half of the 19th century, showing again, he never saw a cranium pegasus twin, never saw a conjoined twin, but as part of his doctoral thesis, he put together this collection and if you look at the bottom right on the side there, you'll see a set of craniopagus. Three books from my own collection, and they all deal with monsters. They all deal with the concept of conjoining. And the book on the right was published in Philadelphia at the end of the 19th century. And you can see the term that was used to uh, describe it. If you were a twin and you survived, what did you do for a living? Well, you pretty much worked in circuses. And the uh, guy on the left is a guy named Gallerisi uh, from uh, Genoa, and he had a set of twin. Uh, he had a twin on his chest, and he would come to his show 
he would open up his coat, you'd give him five bucks, and he'd have somebody else come in. The two kids on the right are the cards that I picked up in Paris on the river scene, showing, again, a Thracopagus set of twins, and the kid on the right is clear achondroplasia, and they had an act that traveled. So you were like a monkey bank. You'd come into town, put up your sign, have your little cards you would sell, and that's how you made a living. The earliest set of craniopagus that I've been able to identify is a set published in an incunable edition back in the 1490s. And uh, according to the description in it, the twins were thought to have occurred because uh, two women that were both pregnant collided and bumped their heads prior to the delivery. So when you go through this uh, story, it was thought that that's where they came. They actually lived to the age of 10, which is very unusual because most of them don't survive. Then when I went to look at the surgical history, the first case we had in the U.S. was done by Cameron in 1928, and unfortunately both died. The first set of twins actually separated where one twin survived, and I'm going to go into this set a little bit further, are the um, Brody twins. One of the questions, uh, particularly early on when we were doing this, if the morbidity and mortality is so high, why would you even want to consider doing it? That's well, actually a very good question. So we went back, looked at the literature. Basically, um, Jim Stone and I found pretty much every case that we could lo locate within the literature going back to the 16th century in all languages. We found 116 kids. And if you look at the survival rate in these children, basically by the age of two, 80% die. And they die of complications mostly related to cardiothoracic. So one of the arguments to at least attempt a separation is to provide viability to the twins. In the sense of making it into adulthood, very rare. There's been only three sets that have made it into adulthood in the U.S. of A. over the last uh, 70 years. And this is a set of twins. Some of you may remember the Bajani twins from Iran, uh, who were actually carried over by the Ayatollah. And this was a set of twins which we now, looking back at what we have learned, would have never attempted a separation on. The reason being age. Most of these kids have to be pretty much done under the age of two. Once you get past the age of five, you're too conjoined. You become very densely vascularized across. And so when these two young attorneys were taken into the operating room, it was basically a death sentence for, uh, at that time. And the problem was a single stage. And what happened is they were doing the separation. They were driving all the blood back to the torcula. And that torcula went from two and a half centimeters to seven centimeters and burst in the operating room. And that was the end of the two of them. So these are the first set. These are the Brody boys. That's Rodney on the left, Roger on the right. And in 1952, Oscar Sugar, neurosurgeon in Chicago, uh, was able to do the first separation. Uh, Rodney, the boy on the bottom right there, lived to the age of 11, died of complications of hydrocephalus. Interestingly, we had no shunts at that time, so he had a, a situation of a big hole in the top of his head. He had a local general surgeon would come to his house once a week, put a needle into the ventricle, drain off the fluid, and that got him to the age of 11. But they, he then died of complications from all those punctures. Roger died about, an, uh, <clears throat> about a month after the uh, surgery. But Oscar, and this is his operating room. This is the case. And it's amazing to go back and look at the OR. The amount of equipment that they had is like 5% of what we take into the room now. No CT scan, no MRI. So it was either a pneumoencephalogram, angiogram. That was pretty much all you had. But he was able to accomplish it. And that is uh, Rodney on the right, and he, of course, was a media uh, celebrity uh, because of it. These kids uh, do generate a lot of interest from the press. 
Unfortunately, Oscar's second case, and again, it's interesting for me to look at this because this is a case now that we would not, we would say would not be able to be separated because of the anatomy between their posterior circulations. And unfortunately, these kids uh, died in the OR. Uh, that was a sad thing for him. This was actually the first consult that we had when I was in Manila uh, at the Philippine Children's, and these kids had just been born. This is a case of craniopegus parasiticus. And as we looked at the MRI, we could see where the two brains came together. We could see the single brain stem. And in parasiticus, you have to separate, because if you don't, they will die because of the competition between the two. So with all my bravado, I came back to my medical center, and I said, we have this interesting set of kids. Uh, we're going to bring them over. We had to present, of course, to the ethics committee. And our local pediatric neurologist got up and basically said, Dr. Goodrich, you're a murderer, and this is manslaughter. You cannot proceed with this case. So I was severely castigated, and obviously we did not do the case, and probably in retrospect, not such a bad idea, but they ended up dying at nine months because of the conjoining. Uh, under more unusual type of cases, there's been a couple of these around. This is what we call craniopegus parasiticus, and this is a situation, the most famous case dates back to the 18th century of John Hunter, um, where he had a set that came out of India from Bengal. And these are more straightforward in the sense that the head itself, of course, is not viable. But again, in this situation, which was done in the Dominican Republic, they uh, uh, were not able to separate a second set that was involved, the set from Egypt, which they had a successful separation. This was back in 2005, and I was just in Cairo earlier this year and found out that they only survived for about two years. I still haven't figured out what the end result of that. But these are some of the various forms that occurred. This is probably the most bizarre set that we have uh, taken care of, and for reasons uh, embryologically that I don't understand. Looking at the child, you can realize there's a lot of complicated issues with this kid. But the interesting part is that this is a child with one head and two other heads. So if you look at the top, you can see the large portion on the right, and then there's a third head to the bottom left. And that embryologically is not possible because you divide in twos. So uh, interesting situation, but because of multiple cardiac issues, uh, this child was not viable enough to go ahead with surgery. I'd be most interested to know that up until the 1980s, there was a surgeon in England by the name of O'Connell who came up with what was called O'Connell's Rule. And his concept was that basically in conjoined twins, one brain was basically a tumor to the other, and that if you were in a conjoined state, that you couldn't grow up and survive together. So he came up with the rule, or the decision-making process of going up to the mother and saying, which child would you like to give up? And this was a concept that was carried on right up through the, pretty much the mid part of the first decade of this century. And in some parts of the world, and we just had a situation with it in the Philippines, where the mother was offered that uh, question of, of what to do. So interesting, but hopefully we've moved on from that. As a result of these cases, Jim Stone, a uh, neurosurgeon in Chicago at that time, uh, we put together a classification system that's actually worked out to be extremely useful. Because we can pretty much now look at the conjoining, the way they are conjoined, the angulation between the two, and pretty much make a decision even before we get into the planning. Not 100% reliable, but certainly been uh, very helpful. So remember this image. This is what we call a vertical stovepipe type configuration. These are the ideal ones. 
top of the head, and ideally you'd like for the neurosurgical reasons, slight rotation, because that moves the sagittal sinuses out of the alignment and makes it different. So this was the first consult, and this was the first set we took care of that came from the Philippines. This is Clarence and Carl Aguirre. Uh, they were born in the very southern part, and mother, again, in this situation, was asked by one of my former fellows who runs the children's program there, which kid did she want to give up? And one kid, there's always a dominant child. And if you look at these kids, the dominant one is on the left. The non-dominant one is on the right. The one on the left was in severe cardiac output failure. Blood pressure was 220 over 110. The one on the left is a parasite to the other child. He uses one diaper about every five days. Clarence on the dominant side uses five diapers a day. So one's doing a dialysis, one's running the heart. So they're complex uh, systems to work with. And one of the things we had to sort out, historically, uh, the single stage wasn't working. So how are we going to do it different? Following Ted Roberts, following Jack Robert, uh, Jack Walker, we came up with the concept of just continuing the staging to see how it works. And there are a lot of other issues that you have to sort out. Anesthesia, give, give medication to one kid, how does it affect the other kid? One kid's severely hypertensive and you want to bring that down, what does it do to the kid that's hypotensive? And these are issues that your anesthesia, your pediatric team, your ICU uh, really have to work out well. So this is Carl and Clarence. We've done a lot of 3D modeling, even from the very beginning. And this has been extremely helpful in us in the sense of making decision plans on planes, which way to uh, do the separation, and it all comes down to the veins. Just as uh, Paul commented earlier, it's never arterial, which is actually very interesting. It's always the venous circulation, and you have to make a decision which is the dominant and which is the non-dominant. In this case, the kid down below Clarence has clearly got the venous outflow. The kid above has much less. And so when you're doing a staging procedure, you're forcing that non-dominant kid uh, to pick up his own supply. And a lot of things have been done in the sense of hypothermia, trying to do venous bypasses, all that. I can tell you it doesn't work, and you're pretty much wasting your time on it. The big decision, again, comes from making what side you're going to go. And when you're doing the separation, you're basically giving the dura and everything to one kid. The other kid, you're going to have to reconstruct the dura. Going to have to re you don't have to reconstruct the sinuses, and that child has to develop its own deep venous circulation. And I'll show you how that takes place. So on the bottom left, you're looking at the model of the two kids. And the neurosurgeons in here will appreciate that the kid on the white has a very limited venous outflow. The model on the right is before the fourth separation, and you can see there's been a very generous venous plane that's been developed. These are not new veins. These are veins that actually exist. You're just challenging them to develop. And by doing that, you're, you're allowing both kids to end. So the key decision, which side is to go on? Um, because again, you're going to leave uh, one. And then it's a staging procedure, basically thinking of a child in a rotisserie. Start on the front, go around to the side, back, and then up the other quadrant. And the final procedure is always the longest. They run about 27 to 30 hours, because you have to take everything apart you're already done do the final separation, you get dural reconstruction, then the plastic surgeons have to come in and do all the tissue covering, and that can be involved. And it, again, at each stage is basically all venous. It's been almost uh, only in one situation, one arterial. Plastic surgeons are extremely critical in this because if you don't have good tissue coverage at the end, you've got CSF leakage, 
you have meningitis, you've got major problems. And when you look at some of the cases done before us, the real complications came from that CSF leakage. So we spend a lot of time, attention, and detail to both the dural coverage and the scalp coverage. And the other interesting thing is flap design. Historically, the incisions were made in a circumferential fashion, thinking they're daisy. That turned out to be a major disaster for the plastics team if you don't have enough tissue. So Dr. Staffenberg came up with this yin and yang type incision, and that does something very interesting. Not only gives you good tissue, but also gives you a perfect hairline. So when you flap each of the flap back, the hairline is right on spot. It's not, you know, hair down to your eyebrow, which I've seen in a couple of other cases. And then interoperatively, uh, the anesthesia team, it's a huge challenge. Uh, the way we do it, and I'll show, is essentially we have two sets of anesthesia teams. Um, we have a third anesthesiologist acts like a bridge between the two. During the procedures, we're an academic institution. The rule is anesthesia don't, anesthesiology doesn't change, residents don't change, and the ICU attendees don't change. There's no handoff. There's no, everybody follows these teams all the way through through the four procedures. So these are the team. On the left is Clarence. That's Carlene running that. On the right is Joe Lozniak. And then, again, we had a third. We had an interesting situation on the last set of twins, thanks to EPIC. You can't do two surgeries in one OR. Yeah, isn't that very nice? So we actually had to set up the room next to it as a room for one child. And the nursing team had to go over that room to enter in all the data if you couldn't legally enter it into one room. They love them, don't you? So this is essentially what you're trying to do. And you can see the uh, venous development, which has turned out to be quite robust. Part of these kids are always, when they arrive, incredibly sick. They're malnourished. They come from poor countries. Uh, so part of your pediatric team is really nutrition, getting them back into uh, a really viable state to uh, continue on. The final stage is the most difficult and the longest of them uh, because, again, you've got to take apart what you've already done three times before and then get the final. One of the things we've learned uh, is that MRIs lie. They do not tell you the truth. And this is a, the first set. And when we looked at the interface between the two brains, <clears throat> we felt that there was an interface with Dura and uh, with CSF. And all of the cases that we have uh, now separated there are areas of fused brain which you have to be prepared to, to deal with. Also, the brains are not flat to each other. They have a very interesting interface, and this is a very common thing where one kid typically interdigitates up into the other child, and you have to be prepared for that. So this was the first set. It's about 8 o'clock at night, and I'm getting ready to go through the final rotation to get it turned over, and we run into this area of brain, and we cannot figure out what's going on. And it turns out this was an eight centimeter segment of fused brain between the two parietal lobes. And the interface actually came in where you can see where the veins go out on the jowl pattern. And uh, so we've learned now that the MRI, unless you actually truly see a dura between the two, that part of the brain is fused. And the rule is if you've got more than 30% um, of the brain fused, then that puts them in a situation where you may likely not want to do them. And of course, a lot of technology goes into this, which I think is wonderful. And then of course, it takes an enormous amount of teamwork. 
We've done several sets now around the world. The next set we did was with Richard Hayward in London. These were a set of two little uh, Irish girls um, who are now 12 years old and have actually done very well. We did a second set with them in London, and these were two little girls from Sudan. And interesting, the father, who's in the bottom right there, was an obstetrician. And he did the ultrasound on his mother and mother's wife and uh, actually made the diagnosis. And they came over uh, as part of a charitable team. We've done two sets in Saudi Arabia. The first set were actually a set of Bedouins. And a very interesting case because um, I went over to do the consultation in January, with the first stage being in March, and I never met the family. The father was a Bedouin. He worked in the desert. He picked dates and wood and would come in and sell it. Finally, after the second procedure, I said to Ahmed, who was my host, as I have to meet the family. I've had no informed consent, haven't been able to discuss anything with them. Third procedure, father shows up, and he's a Bedouin, and uh, started to talk to my Arabic interpreter, and I'm talking about risk and complications and benefit, and he just throws up his hand and goes, he says, Doctor, I don't care if these children die in your operating room. If I take them back to the village, they will kill them. So if they die in your operating room, that's Allah. And I've had that now twice, two situations, another one in Indonesia, but the same. So these were uh, the set we did, and interestingly for the neurosurgeon, these were 180 degree rotated. So what does that do you neurosurgically? That means that the sagittal sinus of one kid drains into the torcula of the other. And these uh, were quite challenging. And, but both have done well. Uh, Ronnie and Raheem were actually at the National Guard Hospital in Riyadh for one year, and they finally actually went back home uh, to the village. And this was, to me, a cultural tour de force to do, but both have uh, done. This was the second set we did in Saudi Arabia. And I show this picture to show you what these kids arrive in. The pediatricians will look at these kids and realize right off the bat that these are not healthy. These were Syrian. Now, Saudi Arabia and Syria do not get along. Uh, they have their Shiite Sunni issues. But at that time, the king was King Abdullah. He had heard about it, and he actually was the one that accepted the kids. The one that's king now, Solomon, would have never done it. So he brought these kids in from Syria, and again, four-stage procedure. And this is the only set of twins that we've actually done interventional on. Uh, the neuroradiologist in Riyadh is an incredibly talented guy who trained in Philadelphia where he did his fellowship with the boys there. This was a situation where we embolized the sagittal sinus as it came in. And you can see where the uh, interruption was done. And for the neurosurgeons, the interesting challenge was you were coming in on one side of the brain of one kid. You then had to come up over the top of the tentorium to the other side so that you could come down to that sagittal sinus. And this is the only set where we've made that leapfrog uh, type approach. So these uh, uh, were a challenge. We just uh, finished them a year ago. And this is just showing you some of the 3Ds that we worked up. The orange is actually showing the silicone wrappers that we put in between the brain. Uh, on the right, uh, and I'll show you a little bit more on this, we now have these 3D CAD CAM programs where we can actually build three-dimensionally and take away. So you can add brain, take away brain, same with the veins. And this has been an enormous help in the sense of uh, sorting out which way. We also do modeling in the sense of 
building the brains and look at the interface so that we can use those interoperatively. And actually, I'll set this down below the uh, podium here. This is Ahmed Alfaran, who I worked with. Uh, so we've done actually two sets, eight surgeries. Uh, that's the father on the right. He has uh, two wives, eight kids, <coughs> lives up in the northern area of Syria. And all he wanted to do was get back home to his kids. And uh, they were actually just uh, discharged earlier this year after an extensive rehab program. So this is the uh, most recent set uh, who actually came from outside of Chicago. Uh, that's These are the McDonald's, Anias, and Jaden. And again, if you look at the bottom right picture, you can see the dither, identical twins. But look at their physiology. Look at the way they look. You can see one kid very fat, chunky, the other very thin and skinny. Because Jaden, who's on the right, is the engine. He's the hypertensive kid who's basically doing the dialysis for the other child, providing them the nutrition. And part of what you have to work on, particularly with your pediatric team and the intensivist team, is to try to get these kids to neutralize. The other problem you have is that because you're on your back, go home tonight and take a meal and try to eat looking up at the sky. You can't do it. And so the problem is kids all have severe aspiration pneumonias and issues with lungs, with chronic uh, pneumonias, all of which, of course, has to be sorted out. Uh, again, talking about the medical modeling, uh, this has been a really uh, unique experience for us in the sense we've actually just invested a half a million dollars in our own 3D printer uh, to build these because they're useful for the plastic surgeon, they're useful for the anesthesiologist in the sense of positioning, and of course for the neurosurgeon doing their mapping and, and breakdown. Uh, in the recent set of kids in the past, our plastics team has basically had to try to guess how much expansion to do. We cannot calculate it out. We can figure out the amount of volume, the amount of tissue expansion uh, that you need to do. And then your flap design, which you can see here, is which, uh, in this case, Orrin Tepper put together. And again, we're looking again at the interface. Uh, and we also, on the bottom right over there, you can see the, we even have heart models that will show us the interface uh, uh, between the two. So these are, this is the program we use, which is basically just PDF. And it uses a CAD CAM. And if you look at the menu on the left, you can see where you can add and subtract. Uh, we put in silastic sheets so we can look at the ventricular systems. And these are some of the modelings that we can do that help us and show that uh, you know, where the interfaces are and what we're going to need to do. In the red is actually the area of fuse brain. So we're now able, through segmentation, to sort out where the fusions are actually going to be so that we're able uh, to deal with that. So these are the good outcomes. These are what we call the triumphs. And remember when I started out, 29 cases, but only eight sets have gone to the operating room. So the next question you would ask, why? What happened to the other ones? Why was there not something uh, done with them? Because that's equally as important in making a decision when you're going to do something and when you're not going to do. So when do you walk away? So this was a uh, interesting situation that I've learned, there's a lot of religion, there's a lot of social, there's a lot of economics, and then there's, uh, well, we'll discuss that part. And then, of course, as a team, you have to decide how much morbidity and mortality you're willing to accept. So this is one of the most fascinating cases we've taken care of, and this was with Doug Cochran when he was out at British Columbia. And these are a set of uh, craniopagus twins 
the have, and I've now seen two sets. We just had a set in Algeria with it. And for those of you familiar with the MR, if you look at that bottom right picture, you can see where the two brains are coming across, and then you'll see a bridge of tissue that goes across. That is a diencephalic bridge, which does not exist in real life. And that diencephalic bridge was very interesting for these two kids, because these two kids, um, if one got a shot, the other felt the pain. If one was thinking that she wanted to go to sleep, the other one would just say, no, I'm not ready yet. So they share thoughts. And what's even more bizarre is the brain of one child controls both sets of arms. The brain of the other child controls both sets of legs. So if you can figure that one out neuroanatomically, I'd love to have a discussion with you afterwards because it, it hasn't worked. So this was a set of twins we decided not to do anything because the morbidity would be enormous. Because they were growing, they uh, survived there now. I think it would be about 10 at this point. This is an interesting video. Okay. Okay, so let's see Show how you get up. There you go. There, fantastic. A very interesting set, but again, one, and then when we started working out their venous anatomy, uh, there was no pathway. This was basically a minefield any way you looked at it. So a combination of the anatomy and, uh, and particularly the venous, we decided not. Another set, uh, interesting, that we looked at actually for originally from Romania, which Al Cohn was taking care of when he was at the Cleveland Clinic, and the twin on the bottom had no kidneys. So the twin on the other side was doing the dialysis. So if we separated the one, which we ended up not doing, we would have to work out something in the sense of the renal. And then, when are you two conjoined? Uh, this has been a set of twins in Indonesia, in Yogyakarta, uh, where the local neurosurgeon had actually tried to separate it, and you can see that circular incision, did four craniotomies, but could never find a plane. And the reason he couldn't get a plane was because they were 70% of their brain fused. There wasn't actually a plane there to do. So we took our team over, met with them, and this was another situation uh, where we felt that the morbidity and mortality were enormous, and also a situation in which the father looked dead on and said, you know, this is a situation, if they, if I do take them home, they will be killed. They live in a small village outside of Yogyakarta. Uh, but again, after we sorted it all out, the anatomy, much too complex. And it's interesting to watch their movements, because when you're that conjoined, everything's mirrored. And if you watch the way the two kids work and do things, particularly when they feed, they're like watching a mirror of each other. Uh, and again, this is just the crossover that's going uh, between their two brains. And their anatomy, uh, when we started sorting it out, uh, it's what I call the wandering veins. When you see these wandering venous structures and the interfacing between the two brains, there is really physiologically no plane that works. And again, when we calculated out the fusion, the only area that was not fused was on that middle one. You can see in the interface, there's a dural interface, uh, and that was it. And when we calculated it out using our CAD-CAD programs, all of that red that you see there is the fusion between uh, the two brains. And interestingly for the neurosurgeons, this was the only set that duplication 
in the arterial system because they had a duplication of their MCAs that were crossing over. And Jack Walker had one set, and his twins were Ted, and this is the only other set I've seen that have shown that type. So when you see this indistinct water, uh, wandering type venous circulation, we've learned now that these are uh, not doable. This was a set from uh, Alabama. Jeffrey Blount was taking care of this kid. And these were kids that were, we knew about in, intrauterine. Uh, unfortunately, they developed NEC. And because of the uh, necrotizing myocarditis, the kid on the left actually died. They tried to do an emergency separation to save the other one, uh, but they were not able to. So, and then one of the things I've learned is a lot of religion, real religion in this business. We've had two sets uh, out of Africa where the family made a decision not anything because they felt that this was a warning from God and for religious reasons had no interest whatsoever. And in both cases, the uh, children had died. The other big problem is financing. Uh, when we were doing the agraries, we got a lot of questions from the media. Why in the world are you spending so much money on these kids when you have other kids that need it? And then one of my neonatologists pointed out, what does it cost to take care of a 25-week ex-creamy? Exactly the same cost as separating the twins when you put the number together. So we do it every day in a sense of just where you're putting your resources. But most of these come from incredibly poor countries. This is a set of twins that are from the uh, very north part of India, which initially we, we couldn't accept because there was nobody that was willing even to provide any funding. They're actually now have just started surgery at uh, the old India Medical Institute in New Delhi. We did the first stage uh, back in July. Uh, but these, I uh, just, you know, this video, it's, it's, it uh, shows the type of environment these kids come from. I mean, you, this is, this is not uh, downtown Hartford. This is a little village. And the problem with these kids is they, they don't get to go out and circulate because the other villagers consider them freaks or monsters. So they typically, uh, this would be it. One of the questions people ask me, well, how do you walk? I mean, how do you get around? You saw the British Columbia kids. That's a very typical, what I call the U stance, where they end up in this kind of like U shape. And you'll see this on these two little kids. Uh, they're just learning at this point. But eventually, and the other interesting thing, if you see the head, they're top to top. Over time, by the time they're teenagers, the heads actually rotate about another 30 degrees, so they become more synchronous uh, uh, with each other. So the take-home message from all this, a lot of ethic, ethnic, and religious, in the sense of anatomical connection, it really turns out to be the vascular, the venous being the most important. And of course, it's not just you as a neurosurgeon, you really have to surround yourself with an incredibly talented team, all the way from anesthesia to plastic surgery to your intensivist, because the part that you're doing is uh, part of it, but if you don't have the rest of the team on board, it's not going to work for you. So on the left are what I call the good ones. On the right are the bad ones. So that when you see these angular type configurations, we've learned that they are the ones that are going to prove to be the most difficult. Um, but if you do get them apart and uh, they can go on to have a normal life, this is the most recent set, Anias uh, and Jaden, who uh, just finished the rehab. They're both up uh, walking. And one thing I'll forewarn you, one twin always does really well, 
and one always is slower. And in this case, the NIAS is the slower of the two, but, and when we uh, interoperatively, they had the largest set of conjoined brain I've dealt with, which was about 10 centimeters. When they both woke up, each had a dense hemiplegia. And Jaden, within about a week, pretty much completely resolved. Anias took almost four months, and the only thing you see now is a little bit of neglect. So the wonderful thing about children is their plasticity, and when you do it young, that they, they can actually uh, recover from this. This is what I call the Hollywood moment, the first time they see each other. So you can see that on the expression on their faces. This is our most recent set that we're working with, an interesting set out of Bulgaria where the government is actually going to pick it up. Uh, this is a situation where the child on the left, clearly viable, um, very functional. The kid on the right is anencephalic, really no brain, just a brain stem, also no kidneys. This will be the first set of twins where we'll actually make the decision that only one child is going to survive. Um, the, and the family, of course, has completely agreed with that part of it. Uh, but they have interesting challenges because they share spine, they share spinal cord, and they also share an iliac complex, which our vascular people are going to have to deal with. So this is our group over the years. As I say, it's what I call the, what are the triumphs and what are the ones you need to walk away. But I think the incredibly important part of the decision making, making that decision, what you think are the ones that you really can do, because it's going to turn out, at least in our experience, two-thirds of them, not necessarily only from anatomy, but also for religion and social and ethnic reasons, their families will make a decision otherwise. But uh, eight sets. Um, 32 operations, and we've had no deaths in our morbidity. We have no mortality, and our morbidity has actually been remarkably low considering the complexity of these kids. <laughs> but it takes a team, and this is the team on the last group, and it's everything from your techs, your PAs, to your practitioners, to your pediatricians, and if they're not working in synchrony, you're not going to end up with a good result. So I will end at that point. Thank you very much.